Please turn with me in your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 21, as we're reading together verses 12 through 17. And the passage we're reading is a passage that most of us are broadly familiar with, but one we don't study that often, and it's the cleansing of the temple. And it follows immediately after Jesus arriving in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And to put it, the passage in its context, of course, you will be aware that Jesus has just ridden on the back of a donkey along with his disciples walking by his side down through the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and then up into Jerusalem itself, and he makes his way to the temple. That's a journey of about 25 minutes walking. It's not a very tough journey, but it allows you to see Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, then down the Kidron Valley as I said, then climbing back up into Jerusalem and making your way to the temple. Temple, And it's filled, of course, with symbolism. And the symbolism that has been displayed in chapter 21, the first 11 verses, focuses on Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah coming, gentle and meek, riding on a donkey. And then we come to verse 12 of Matthew 21, Jesus enters the temple. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But... When the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never heard from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Paul Pierre Thomas was born in Montreal in Canada back in 1940. He was one of several boys, and growing up he heard his brothers talk about ice hockey. And when he was a wee boy, he longed to play ice hockey. He was super excited listening to his brother's talk, listening to his brothers making the school team, listening to his brothers going out and playing in the neighborhood, and he longed with all his little heart to play ice hockey. Unfortunately, he would never play because he was born blind. And until he was age 60, He used a white cane, even as a child, to help him work his way around both the house and school and get through his life. When he turned 60, he fell down the stairs in an apartment building and badly damaged the bones in his face and fractured his skull. His face was so badly damaged, in fact, that he was rushed to the ER as his eyes were swollen badly and he was bleeding profusely. 
after they stabilized him at hospital and after months of reconstruction, he was visiting a plastic surgeon of all specialists to help uh, fix the break at the side of his head and particularly the scalp. And when the plastic surgeon was talking to him, he said to him almost in a casual manner, Now, you've had a medical team working with you over the last few months, and we think we have pretty much repaired everything in terms of the bone structure. We can certainly help in terms of plastic surgery to try and put your scalp back to normal. And incidentally, uh, we can probably fix your eyesight as well if you would like that. And he was stunned. And Paul Pierre said, Excuse me? You mean you can give me sight? And he said, oh yeah. Again, almost in a casual fashion. And three months later, for the first time, Paul Pierre could see. And you can imagine the thrill and delight and joy that overwhelmed him when they took off the bandages for the first time. And the light, of course, was blinding. And eventually his eyes began to adjust and he would talk to his family about the beauty of flowers and plants and the shapes of buildings and cars. And he could see his parents' face uh, and his brother's face and his nephew and nieces for the first time. And in the midst of all of the joy of that, at one point he writes in an autobiography, it's an article actually in a newspaper, he writes about his sadness in looking back on that occasion because he then realized not only did he have the joy of sight, but he could have regained his sight a couple of decades before he did. He just never thought it was possible and never thought to pursue that question. Now Paul Pierre came to a fresh understanding, a new appreciation of every aspect of his life when he was given his sight. This week, as we move through Palm Sunday towards Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and this time next week when we celebrate all of the joy and wonder of the resurrection, my trust and prayer and hope for each one of us is this, that this week will find us drawn closer to the very heart of God to remember the significance and importance and overwhelming joy of all that Christ achieved for us when he went to Calvary on their behalf. And my prayer is that we will come to that fresh understanding and new appreciation of his love for us. And I would also say this, that I think that was Matthew's desire when he first set out to write his gospel. He wanted everyone who opened up its pages and to pour over it to grasp the wonder and joy and immensity and intensity of the love and grace of God. And you find it actually on every page of Matthew's Gospel. And as we come to Palm Sunday, that well-known Sunday in the life of Christ, it begins the last week, of course, of his ministry. 
And let me put the passage in context for you. In chapter 21, verse 10, immediately before the passage we read, Matthew records, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Because multitudes were throwing down their cloaks and waving branches and singing Hosanna to the son of David, going back to those Old Testament prophets. And people are being stirred and asking, who is this? But that's not the first time this question has come up in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, multiple times from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 21, the identity of Christ, who he is, why he has come, has been highlighted and focused on multiple times. And in fact, Matthew's gospel changes in terms of its tone and focus at chapter 16. And it changes over a single question. And that question points to the identity of Jesus as well. Jesus is with his disciples. They are on the road to Caesarea Philippi. And as they are walking along, Jesus says to them, Who do people say I am? And after various answers, Simon Peter, as Simon Peter often did, spoke up first and summarized all that the others were thinking. And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And a new focus, as I said moments ago, creeps into Matthew's gospel from that point on. And you see it in Matthew chapter 20. When you read, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles. To be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, be raised to life. And what wonderful words of Jesus anticipating what would happen in Jerusalem. And that was not the first time that he had predicted his own death and resurrection. In fact, you find it right after that passage in Matthew 16, when once again he says, I must go up to Jerusalem and suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law, then raised to life. Now when you look at that passage and you see it, you will see that Jesus not only is predicting his death, But his death was to fulfill the eternal purposes and plans of God. So in the course of this week, please never give in to the belief that Jesus' death was somehow an accident. That somehow it didn't work out because of the jealousy of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That certainly played a part, but it wasn't the main purpose. Neither was it because of weak leadership on behalf of Pontius Pilate, which was true, but that again wasn't the main reason. Neither was it the jealousy on behalf of the chief priests, but it was because of his father's great love for us that since before the foundation of the world, he had ordained and planned the mission of Christ to come into the world, to die for us. 
And in fact, in Matthew 21, we read these words. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now, let me ask you this morning, do those words ring a bell? Coming towards the last week of the life of Jesus. And I wonder if they ring a bell because somewhere in the back of your mind, you remember similar words much, much, much earlier in Matthew's Gospel. And in fact, the last time we read those words took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. It's in Matthew chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us in the infancy narrative of Matthew. And so here is Matthew opening his gospel with all this took place to fulfill and then closing his gospel with almost identical words. All of this took place to fulfill. I'm sure I've told you this before, but I have a distinct memory of being in my late 20s. It was a couple of days before Christmas And I was sitting at home watching the six o'clock news in Inverness in Scotland. And as I watched the news that day, a reporter was interviewing the governor of the Bank of England. And he asked him about the economy, how was it doing, and would Christmas have an impact on the economy? And the governor of the Bank of England looked at him and said these words. We will never be able to know the full extent of Christmas until we get to Easter. And it's true spiritually as well. We will never come to realize the full extent of Christmas till we get to Easter. The virgin will be with child. And will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us, born into the world to inexorably move towards Jerusalem and his death, and ultimately his resurrection. And all of that is contained In Matthew 21, those first 11 verses that we didn't touch on, and it reminds us that we will never understand the full extent of the Savior's birth till we come to Easter. And so this morning, we are not looking at, in any great depth, the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, although we've touched on it. But I wanted to touch on the second part of chapter 21. Jesus and the cleansing of the temple, the passage we read a few moments ago. And as the passage develops, you have one of the most exciting, dramatic, memorable passages found anywhere in the entirety of the Gospels. And I say that for this reason. 
that if you had come to church this morning and I started overturning music stands and flipping tables and pushing palm branches out of the way and upsetting instruments, some of you, of course, naturally would be shocked and thinking, what on earth is he doing? And then, of course, others might get out your cell phone and press record and watch it unfolding and then put it on Facebook and YouTube and TikTok and Instagram later this afternoon. And by lunchtime, I would be trending as I'm flipping chairs and tables around the sanctuary. And of course, you can see the headline in the Greenville News tomorrow morning. Rogue Scottish pastor disrupts church service. You can just see it, can't you? No doubt it would be recorded as rogue Irish pastor upsets church service, but that's just the way it is. That would be a memorable occasion. Do you think it was any less memorable back then? Not for a moment. Not for a moment because not only would the residents of Jerusalem watch this unfold and be amazed and stunned at Jesus turning over tables, making a cord from the rope around his waist and moving towards the merchants. But this was also the week of Passover. And that meant this, that between 1 to 1.3 million visitors would be in Jerusalem for that week. And all across the Mediterranean basin, and if you can visualize in your mind a map of Israel, Israel would be here, coming north to Antioch, to Tarsus, modern-day Turkey, coming south to the North African coast, all the way across, and on the other side, Italy, from what's called the Mediterranean basin. Jews by the hundreds and thousands, up to a million, as I said, would be making their way to Jerusalem to give thanks for God's faithfulness and kindness and goodness in bringing them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And it was one of the great festivals and activities of the year. And a million people would turn up. But the problem was this. That they were looking forward to arriving at the temple. They were looking forward to entering through the temple doors into an area called the court of the Gentiles. Now to give you a sense of scale, the court of the Gentiles was the same size as putting together 35 football fields. It is absolutely enormous. And as individuals and families arrived at the temple and went into the court of the Gentiles, all round the edges, all over the place, would be merchants buying and selling. And there would be a variety of stalls where you could go for a variety of reasons. If, for example, you and your family arrived in Jerusalem and you wanted to sacrifice a dove, a pigeon, a goat, a young lamb, you would then go to the merchants who were selling these animals. You wouldn't bring it from North Africa or modern-day Turkey. You would simply purchase it and present it for sacrifice right there. 
And of course, as you brought with you some money, they would look at that money, and if it had the head of a pagan leader on it from North Africa or Asia Minor, that was unacceptable in the temple. You had to exchange it for Jewish shekels, and then you could use it to buy animals for sacrifice. And of course, the merchants caught on pretty quickly that they could charge whatever rates they wanted, and the pilgrim was left, either take it or leave it. And so the exchange rate was exorbitant. If you brought with you a family heirloom, a precious silver tray or cup, you could then swap that for finance to then pay your temple tax, which was half a shekel, or buy an animal for sacrifice. And once again, there was an opportunity to set prices extremely high and pilgrims were being robbed day after day after day. And you had that strange mixture of commercialism with greed and corruption all mingled together. And can you imagine how open to abuse that system was? And can you imagine the disappointment from a family who have taken eight to ten days to travel there? And in their minds, they are imagining all the time of what it would be like to go into the temple and give thanks and glory to God for his goodness and kindness on your ancestors and on you as a family. And the children would be asking, Dad, what is it like? What can we expect? Dad would paint in glowing colors all that they could anticipate seeing. And their excitement was high, and rightly so. And I wonder, in fact... If some of those moms and dads and grandparents didn't turn to Isaiah chapter 6 and remind their children and grandchildren of what happened when Isaiah the prophet went into the temple and Isaiah writes in these words, I saw the Lord holy and lifted up high upon his throne and his robes filled the temple. Thirty-five football fields filled with the undiluted, concentrated brilliance of transcendent majesty and glory and holiness. And no wonder they couldn't wait to get there. And Isaiah said this, The ground began to shake, and the wood and the stone began to tremble at the very presence and majesty and grandeur of the transcendent grace of God. And no wonder they were looking forward to being in the temple for Passover. Thinking back those 800 years, thinking back to moments when God had answered their prayer and given them children and grandchildren and blessed their small farm all over the known world. And they could not wait to get there. 
And Jesus, gentle and meek, riding on a donkey, arriving in Jerusalem, knowing he had come to fulfill the plans and purposes and eternal decrees of God, could not wait to watch the purposes of God unfold. And as he goes into the temple, the noise and the stench of the animals and the corruption and the theft of merchants, you can understand entirely why a righteous anger began to bubble up inside him. And what does he say? He says this, My father's house shall be a house of prayer, and you have turned it into this. You've turned it into this of all things. It was a sacred space. It was the very place where heaven and earth intersected. Where the eternal and the temporal, the visible and the invisible, the sacred and the secular, all met together. And the presence of Almighty God was almost tangible. And it had been turned into this shallow, disgusting, Disgusting, dreadful place of theft and corruption. And no wonder Jesus was upset. And notice how the religious authorities respond. Matthew records it. But when the chief priests And the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did. And the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. (laughs) Can you grasp the immensity of the contrast here? The very son of God. God was standing next to them and they were indignant because children were crying Hosanna to the son of David. The children could see with childlike faith what the professional religious priests and leaders could not see. And the children could see it. The professionals were not upset by the stench of the animals, the corruption and shallow nature of the exchange. They were upset because children were crying words of a prophet. Or was there something else going on that day? Were they indignant because they had become so used to all that was taking place, they themselves never thought to clean it out? Could that be in the back of their minds? Could it be that they were indignant because this Messiah that they had heard so much about from Galilee was not challenging their Roman authorities and their masters? 
on a political basis or fighting against nationalism? Is that why they were indignant? Could it be that they had become so used to their surroundings they could no longer discern the smell or hear the noise? And sin is like that. It brings with it a deep, deep deception. It has a tranquilizing effect on the heart and soul. And here is Jesus arriving, pointing it out. And they were indignant. Good night. And here is my challenge as we try to wrap things up this morning. As we move into this week, if you are serious about saying again, Father, allow me this week to fully grasp afresh, to come to a new understanding of all that took place that first Easter week, Turn over the tables of my heart. Cleanse the hidden recesses of my soul. Help me in my thought process to be more Christ-like. To seek you first. To run after holiness and purity and grace. Cleanse me, begin with me, change me, painful as it will be, indignant as I might become, allow me to appreciate Easter in a whole new way. And I wonder, just wonder, in the course of this week, we will once again be able to say, we cannot fully understand the significance of Christmas till we appreciate afresh the impact of Easter and its death for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank you that it calls us away from the shallow and the superficial, the routine and the ritual, but to spend this Easter week in your presence. Help us, please, to be refreshed and renewed by the love of Christ. Help us to focus And Jesus, this week, thankful, grateful for all that he accomplished on her behalf. Father, may this Easter week be indeed a memorable week as we spend it with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.